Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, and here we are once again discussing David Hackett Fisher's Paul Revere's Ride. From the looks of things, uh, many of you all have been um, following this series uh, rather very well. It's not so much by the numbers for each podcast episode, but something just tells me that many of you who have been listening to Paul Revere's Ride have probably uh, been blown away at just how much more bigger the story itself has become, given what the textbooks had told us for so long that it was just a one-man show. I guess it was a one-man show for so long because when we think of Paul Revere, we just think of him as this grand individual who couldn't do anything wrong when he rode into town saying the British were coming. Well, to me, it's not a question of not being able to do anything wrong, but the mission itself was more than just Paul Revere. It was a mission that involved everyone willing to join in his cause and riding throughout all the towns and villages, north and south, east and west, warning the countryside from a broad uh, perspective, from a greater scope that, hey, it's up to you all to decide what's best, not just for yourselves, but for your communities and how your communities are going to respond in the event of a greater enemy, an enemy whose existence on our own soil has been nothing but one disaster after another. In other words, yes, we've stood up against them, but we've taken all the heat we're going to take. In other words, you're only going to take but so much until the real thing actually happens. So, in this podcast session, we're going to discuss the first shot, the fight on Lexington Green. And most of you were beginning to wonder, when would we really start to talk about the real thing? And that is the shots heard around the world. Well, I'm pleased to say that this podcast episode, we are going to discuss about that first shot, the fight on Lexington Green. It's really not a question of who really did fire the first shot, but how the first shot itself really came about that would ultimately ignite a world war. At this point in time, between two nations, colonial America and England being the mother country, so let's keep in mind, folks, April 19th, 1775, uh, France is not anywhere close to, um, to uh, forming an alliance with um, America. But from the looks of things, maybe that's okay, because right now this uh, confrontation needs to stay just between um, colonial America and England. In other words, England and her 13 subjects. Although it is fair to say, though, that Massachusetts right now and New Hampshire, Connecticut, maybe Rhode Island, that those colonies are the ones that are uh, leading the way in declaring separation from England. After all, Massachusetts is the cradle bed for independence. So our first leadoff question will be the following. As Paul Revere successfully escorted Whig leaders and Samuel Adams and John Hancock to safety. 
Did General Thomas Gage's regulars have a clue as to where they were going or what was expected of them since leaving Boston five hours earlier? You know, Thomas Gage, he is the head commander of British forces in North America. So you would think that he would have um, told his officers below him and would have provided information to his officers to give to his uh, troops, to, to their troops, on what the mission is all about, where they're going. I hate to tell you this, but the answer is no. General Gage failed to advise his company commanders about the mission's purpose, even with hearing gunshots in the distance. So in other words, here are uh, British officers leading their uh, brigade units, marching to an unknown destination. And we have to remember, we don't have any um, modern-day military vehicles at this time, so here are these men marching for five hours. I'm not sure how many miles they've covered, but I think it's fair to say after about five hours, your men are starting to tire out. And to make matters worse, or even more unbearable, is knowing that you're hearing gunshots in the distance. In other words, perhaps townspeople are firing gunshots in the distance to warn everyone that they see British troops coming in the distance. Not just coming, but marching nearby, so it could be a way to alert other townspeople of what to expect. Now, as for the um, original party of British officers whom uh, were responsible for capturing Paul Revere, and yet they ended up having to release him because they were um, in fear for their own lives given the warnings that uh, Revere had issued to them about just what would happen if they stayed any longer around um, the proximity or right in Lexington Green or in Lexington, let alone, the party of British officers being 10, whom canvassed the road to Concord, they became the ones who warned General Gage's regulars about their prisoner encounter with Paul Revere. Not just their prisoner encounter with him, but the warnings that Revere himself issued of what would come should they stay within and right inside uh, the confines of Lexington. So this is not a good time to be um, in the Brit on the side of the British. I mean, yes, you are the mightiest empire in the world, but it doesn't really mean anything because, um, yes, you might have the upper advantage in terms of um, having more supplies, but at the same time, if you don't know your terrain very well, you don't have very many people siding with you. That is, no no townspeople are siding with you. And if any of the townspeople are loyalists, hopefully they hopefully they would have been smart enough to have left their um, respective towns and um, seek exile somewhere where their lives would not be at stake. So if you don't know where you're going, in terms of uh, being on the side of the British and you don't even know about the mission itself, all I can say is that you really are up a creek. 
Our next question is the following. Did most British soldiers know who Paul Revere was? Yes. Some knew he was an ambassador from Whig, community, from Whig committees of Massachusetts to the Continental Congress, whereas others knew him as the man whom led an uprising in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to where militia forces overtook Fort William and Mary, including its munitions, a.k.a. gunpowder supplies. So, yes, uh, Paul Revere is no stranger to the British. And the fact that he's uh, more than just, um, he represents more than just one identity or one cause behind this entire movement of independence, that says a lot right there. And by being an ambassador from Whig, from Whig committees, in other words, he has, you know, he's, okay, he's with the Sons of Liberty, the North End Caucus. He's involved, he and Dr. Joseph Warren were involved in the, in the um, highest level or highest number of uh, committees. Uh, I want to say Revere and Warren were probably the only two that were involved in all five or six committees that were established in the greater Boston area. Most other men at best maybe served on two or three committees and some just served on one, but Paul Revere and Dr. Joseph Warren were the two that uh, served on them all. They were probably the most ubiquitous of the uh, committee members. So uh, yes, Paul Revere, given that he was um, an ambassador to the Continental Congress. Remember, he rode, um, you know, numerous times southward from New York to Philadelphia and then Philadelphia to New York. He did that about five times, um, especially around the time when the first, before and just right after the first Continental Congress convened. But he did uh, give the essential information to the first Continental Congress of the happenings in Massachusetts, most notably through means of uh, committees of correspondence. So the British know that this man uh, simply is one of those ubiquitous individuals who uh, doesn't miss out on anything, but he's also the one who is uh, creating so much havoc for them that they probably know now that they, that they truly did miss their golden opportunity by having just simply kept him as a prisoner. Yes, he may have intimidated British officers while being um, being a prisoner, but I do believe that uh, the British made a huge mistake by releasing him. However, if they had still kept him as a prisoner, um, more than likely uh, William Dawes and Dr. Samuel Prescott, along with other riders, would have carried out the mission still, but someone else would have been in line ready to take Revere's place and overseeing all the other essential duties that needed to be fulfilled to ensure that the townspeople in, in the countryside were um, ready to go as the British were making their march into um, what we now know, Lexington, given that that's where uh, the first shots heard around the world will be taking place. Now, given Paul Revere was already ahead of British regulars, were British forces afraid of him? Yes. They knew Revere meant trouble, considering he knew more about their whereabouts, or I should say movements, including the fact that all of New England had organized against them. 
So when I say all of New England, folks, I'm, I'm talking more than just Massachusetts. I'm talking about, you know, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and more than likely Rhode Island. The only reason I say Rhode Island is because I know that uh, Rhode Island did have, um, Rhode Island did cater to a, a fair number of loyalists, but I don't think any colony was immune from catering to its fair share of loyalists. But it's probably safe to say at this time that the three leading colonies of the 13, who, um, in terms of the uh, British knowing that um, New England, all of New England had organized against them, we can say that it was Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and uh, Connecticut. The people of New England weren't unruly like British military leaders deemed them out to be. You know, yes, um, the Massachusetts militiamen may not have been the most well-dressed of uh, soldiers, but they knew how to uh, fire their muskets. They knew how to take care of them. They knew how to clean them. They knew how to uh, do things that their British counterparts were trained to do. So it's like that old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. In other words, let's not judge these militiamen just by the way they're dressed. Because even the way one's dressed can uh, fool the opposition in ways that are least expected. So, yes, the British are, um, are afraid. And they know that this movement is more than just Paul Revere himself. They know that no matter what direction they're going in, they will be expected to encounter dispatch riders. They will be expected to encounter uh, townspeople who aren't afraid to stand up. Yes, the uh, presence of, a, of an officer could be a little intimidating, but they've um, endured enough uh, crap, to say the least, that, hey, you know what? If you want a war, we're not afraid to stand head to toe with you all. Yes, war is not, war might be in our blood considering that the last four generations or the roughly close to six generations have, um, of people living in Massachusetts have fought in um, four wars over a 140 year span, but, but we're not afraid. However, this time around, hopefully will be the last straw to where we no longer are considered subjects by an outside um, country whom we may have had ties to for a long time, but, um, but within the last 10 to 12 years, all of that's changed. Why so? Well, after the French and Indian War ended, the, um, the untying of an apron, let's put it this way, began to unravel. And by the time 1775 rolls around, April 19th, I think it's fair to say most notably Massachusetts has probably untied the biggest knot of the mother country's apron. The longer the journey, or I should say the march, British forces realized this wasn't a drill, but instead a mission that wasn't clear-cut, or I should say defined to where resolution without violence, a.k.a. gunshot, wouldn't be achieved. Further the marching, the greater likelihood of British being engaged into combat with militiamen. Well, as I've said before, it, you know, if you don't define the mission, if you don't give your men any kind of advanced notification on where they're going, 
then how are they going to even be able to appreciate what the overall objective behind the so-called mission represents? And, you know, it's one thing to have a drill, but if you're conducting a drill, sure, you might be taking your men out for a march somewhere a couple of miles down the road, but you're going to know where to stop. You're going to know where to conduct the drill. You're, you're going to know where to, when to end it. You're going to know when it's time to bring the men back to their original, um, what do you call it, um, campgrounds or um, grounds where they have, um, where they are stationed until further notice. But given that none of that was uh, going, none of that had been uh, coordinated, I can see how for these British uh, troops that there is really no unity behind this uh, journey. And things are going to get even more heated here soon, folks. So keep fastening, keep your seatbelts fastened. British troops, while marching to their unknown destination, were distracted by sounds of alarm guns to meeting bells ringing from every direction. You know, meeting bells are also, you know, like the church bells. In other words, they're bringing people together to come to an exact location to say, hey, the enemy is in sight. This is where we need to assemble. After all, you know, churches are more than just a place of worship. In many instances, churches have become the focal center for where gunpowder is being stored and secure locate and secure uh, buildings inside the uh, inside the uh, greater facility. So, the uh, the ringing of the bells to the sounds of alarm guns, and what I mean by alarm guns, folks, is people firing um, their muskets or rifles in the distance, warning of British presence nearby. It this will. Um, further disrupt the um, British march. And you also have the presence of um, riders, dispatch riders, disrupting their march. It turns out that one dispatcher deliberately disrupted the march by telling uh, British troops that X number of uh, militiamen were already stationed at Lexington Green. This dispatcher was caught how long he was detained, I'm not sure, but the bottom line is the dispatcher deliberately um, disrupted their march to where it delayed them from ultimately from getting to Lexington sooner than originally planned. Now, I'm sure some of you, some or many of you all are, are wondering, what time did the British, or should I say British regulars, what time did British regulars actually arrive into Lexington on April 19th of 1775? I'm going to give you a couple of choices. Choice one is 10.30 a.m. Choice B, 3.30 p.m. Choice C, 4.30 a.m. The answer is 4.30 a.m. So that means, folks, if the British had marched five hours, that means they would have had to have left at best sometime after 11 o'clock in the evening of April 18th, 1775. So, 4.30 a.m. is official time of arrival into Lexington. 
Now, remember, folks, these men don't have tents with them. They don't have the whole nine yards to um, get about five hours of sleep before the next uh, assignment comes along. Many of these men are going to be in for an even bigger surprise. But I think it's fair to say that both sides will be in for a bigger surprise here shortly. As the British got closer to Lexington Common, did one of their own recognize Paul Revere, who wasn't far away? Yes, Revere himself happened to be crossing the Lexington Common at the same time British troops arrived. Now, we uh, discussed uh, from our previous podcast about John Parker, who was captain of the Massachusetts uh, Militiamen. Captain Parker, as we all know, um, is a very well-liked man. He's very well-respected. He is the type of uh, captain whom others would look up to in times of emergencies, such as this one. Captain Parker himself is no stranger to war. He served in the French and Indian War. So he knows what it takes to um, put up a good fight with the enemy. He also knows not to not to back down, especially now that he's fighting against the mightiest empire in the world. You know, he might be captain of the militia, but it could be fair to say that Captain John Parker might as well be the actual general of the militia forces present in Lexington. He's got a, he's got a fair number of duties. He's got it, it revolves around more than just commanding the commanding men below him. But one of the things he does, and it's smart to do, in this case is the following: he he's allowing enemy troops to pass by. Now, what I mean by passing by is that he's not letting the troop enemy and their, uh, or I should say, British troops just pass his forces along. But by passing by, he's watching them from a distance. He's watching one unit of men go first while the other unit goes, follows behind. Basically, he's watching a procession of units because he wants to see for himself exactly just how many British troops General Gage has, um, has for this um, potential um, conflict. And, I'm, you know, and I have no doubts that many of you all are probably thinking to yourselves, well, General Gage is probably going to have the upper hand. He probably could have at least 2,000 troops on him at best. But I think we might be surprised to know that that answer could be false. I can tell you this much right now. Historians know that there were at least uh, between 75 to 80 uh, militiamen present at Lexington. What we do know for a direct fact is that there were under 300 British soldiers present at Lexington. I think they were probably close to about 250. Now, that doesn't seem like a high number, but 250 actually does seem to me like a big number, considering that uh, maybe not all 250 are going to be right at the main drag of Lexington Common right away to square off against the militia. So it, I think it's fair to say that uh, maybe half of that number was present right as um, 
the confrontation ensued, while the other half was either in the near distance or had not even arrived at that actual moment. So, yes, Captain John Parker is studying the long files and processions of regulars, or I should say redcoats, so that his forces would be prepared for defense maneuvers should they be fired upon first. So remember, folks, this is more than just, oh, look at these regulars and their fine attire walking and marching to the center of the common. We're trying to get a glimpse of, hey, what? how are we going to respond should we be fired upon first? What kind of a line should we be formed in? In other words, do we put everybody in the middle? Do we put some of our militiamen to the left? Do we put some to the right and have a fair and have a portion in the center? So that's what Captain Parker's got to—he's uh, got to be assessing and determining. However, Captain Parker is smart enough here to say this, because to me, this this would separate boys from men. Captain Parker warned his fellow militiamen as to what would happen. Should any one of them run before shots got fired, just standing their ground if fired upon? Okay, if the British regulars are 50 yards from you, and nothing has been done just yet in terms of firing a shot, are you going to stand your ground by looking at them square, squarely in the face? Or are you going to go run home? Well, if I was one of those militiamen, I'd stay put where I was at. I'd want to send a message to the uh, regulars to say, hey, look, yes, you might be dressed in your fine decor. You might, be, you might be representing the strongest military power in the world. Well, yes, me and my fellow comrades, we might be dressed in ragtag clothing. But hey, we're no strangers to war. We know how to fight a war. We've been a part of four previous wars. But this time around, it's different because we're fighting against what was, for so long, our ally who has now betrayed us. So there is a lot of psychological factors here, folks. But it's a good thing that Captain Parker has warned his fellow militiamen of what would happen should any one of them run before shots got fired to standing their ground if fired upon. So Captain Parker has made it clear that they are not to be the ones firing first. If anyone's going to fire, you let it be the British to do so. Now, I should, I hope all of you are getting some good understanding here now that here's another good example of where the textbooks probably told us one unique, one particular story for so long. They wanted us to believe that um, that British forces and the militiamen just happened to arrive at the same time and maybe decided to say to one another, hey, I double dog or triple dog dare you to uh, fire uh, the first shot and then the melee itself will ensue. That's not how it worked. In other words, we just didn't arrive at this. We just didn't come up and say, hey, we're ready to pick a fight. Let's um, take aim and fire. That's not how it worked, folks. Let's find out about uh, British Marine Lieutenant Jesse Adair. I found him to be very important. And I want to share that with you all, so pay very careful attention. Well, let me ask you all this. 
Why is British Marine Lieutenant Jesse Adair important? He was faced with a split decision choice on where to navigate his forces, considering that Lexington Commons main road got divided. To the left, the road would go towards Concord, which is just west of Lexington. But there was a problem. Cap uh, Lieutenant Adair was very fearful of the fact that if, if his forces went left, that there could be a potential strike from the enemy without further protection. In other words, his forces would be exposed to where there was no protection from, from a different angle. In other words, if he goes to the left, for all we know, there could be militiamen that could ambush his forces, or perhaps bystanders somewhere nearby um, hiding in disguise to where they could um, come out of nowhere and fire upon the troops. So his other um, dilemma would be if he went to the right, it, the road would uh, fork to the right. It would send regulars straight toward the militia column. So for Lieutenant Adair, he doesn't really have a clear-cut path as to where he can go without being immune from any contact with militia forces. However, Lieutenant Jesse Adair doesn't have all day to make this decision. And as they say, sometimes you just got to go with your own gut instinct. And that also can mean the following. You're either damned if you do or you're damned if, or you're damned if you don't. Well, Adair and his brigade turned to the right fork into the militia's center. As Lieutenant Adair led his 4th and 10th foot of light infantry ever so closer to the Lexington militia, Major John Pitcairn rode his horse into full-speed mode where he halted Adair's advance to where soldiers on both sides heard, British, heard this British officer say the following words. Pay careful attention. And this is in quotation. Lay down your arms, you damned rebels. Now, if that's not a stern enough warning, I don't know what is. Now, I can't imagine being close to uh, one of 80 militiamen at Lexington only to have this um, high-ranking officer, being that of Major John Pitcairn, come riding his, riding his horse into a full-speed mode where he is halting Lieutenant Adair's advance, but only to hear him say, in front of you, being that of the militia force, Lay down your arms, you damned rebels. Well, here's the next question. Did the Lexington militia lay down their arms? The answer is no. But throughout the chaos, some militiamen did disperse. In other words, another word for disperse means to leave. How many of those militiamen dispersed, I don't know. But if they did disperse, they did it under the command of Captain John Parker. In other words, if anyone dispersed without his instructions, then they would have been frowned upon for being a coward in doing so. 
However, many other militiamen stayed in position or in place. If one asked me, uh, Kirk, if you were alive at this time, if you were um, a native of Massachusetts and you um, were willing to um, make the ultimate sacrifice, for one, I would. I wouldn't. I would not have been afraid to have put my own life on the line. But would you have dispersed if you had been told to do so, or would you have stayed in position? The answer can be easier said than done, but if I had to pick an answer, I would have stayed in place. Not because I, it would not have been because of wanting to witness history, but to take a stand, to say, hey, I'm not afraid of you all. I'm not afraid to go head to toe with a red coat. Even if I don't come home alive, I know that I've made the ultimate sacrifice by standing up for what I believed in was right, for um, protecting my family's well-being, and for um, making sacrifices that would ensure that if freedom were to arise out of this conflict, that future generations would live in freedom. Easier said than done, but that's how I would approach it. While Paul Revere and his uh, fellow uh, friend John Lowell, they were uh, working on securing a trunk full of vital documents belonging to John Hancock. Paul Revere himself saw British regulars approaching closer to where the militia stood, only to hear a shot ring out from behind him. So just in a matter of minutes, folks, the inevitable has happened. I, ironically, Paul Revere was unable to see where this um, shot originated from, and let alone whom even fired the shot. Remember, things happen just so quickly that when it that when they do happen, it um, it's all in the blink of an eye. Both sides weren't able to determine where exactly the first shot got originated, where the first shot originated from, but they both agreed that the first shot didn't come from Captain Parker's militia, as well as rank and file of British infantry. Well, I can tell you this, uh, as I was uh, doing my homework um, in preparation for this uh, podcast, historians have debated um, a multitude of theories behind whom, in fact, may have fired the first shot. So many of you all are probably wondering, uh, Kirk, what do you think about all of this? Well, let's talk about that here real, real brief. Was it possible that multiple shots could have been fired close together? Yes. One shot per each side could have gone off at the same time, one from a British officer by horse, and the other from an American spectator nearby. Okay, to me it would make practical sense that a British officer would have fired if that had been the case. After all, uh, British officers are carrying smaller size um, guns. They are carrying pistols. The British infantry are or either uh, carrying muskets or rifles, but I'm going to assume m most likely a rifle. But I could see where if, it, if there had been multiple shots fired close together, that a British officer would have taken his pistol 
and fired it as a warning for the militiamen to disperse and to lay down their arms. I also do believe that it very well was possible that an American spectator nearby perhaps fired off what we call an alarm gun to perhaps be the one to make history as being that individual who was the first to, to fire the shot heard round the world. I believe that all that's fair to say. Why so? Well, the men per each side or per each opposing side were, were very um, heavily focused on watching what the other would do given there wasn't full 100% visibility at Lexington Green. And when I say that there wasn't full 100% visibility, I'm not talking weather here. Uh, historians do know that it was a, um, a fairly sunny or uh, partly sunny day, but there was no fog. So obviously visibility was average, but we must remember too at Lexington Common, there were homes nearby there was even a tavern, Buckman's Tavern, that Revere himself um, stayed at. So this was not just an open land where, you know, people could come and come and go as they wanted to. Sure, there could have been spectators who came from nearby towns um, whom knew exactly where the British were going and probably wanted to witness a piece of history but I do believe that someone, perhaps either within the greater Lexington community or just on the outskirts of Lexington, um, who was there on the American side, would have been the one to have uh, fired a shot as a means of, um, of igniting a rally cry that the following had been done. That the Americans, not just the American militiamen, that is the militiamen of Massachusetts, but America as a greater nation stood up to the mightiest empire and was willing to, to risk it all by firing the shot heard round the world. That's just my take on the story, but there is some uh, there there could be some good uh, plausible uh, proof to it. Although we will never know. Whom fired first at Lexington? What happened next, which was visible to what happened next, which was visible to everyone present at the common? Once after the initial first shot got fired off, British infantry troops began firing on militia without orders from above, to where officers themselves couldn't control the pace of events, or I should say actions taking place before them. You know, it's bad enough that these officers didn't even know what, what, the, um, what the fundamental purpose of the mission itself was uh, that they were uh, embarking on, but now all of a sudden they've lost control of their um, units who are now firing upon the militia. If that's not the way to go about maintaining proper order and discipline, even in a moment of uncertainty, then I don't know what is. And I'm sure many of you all are probably thinking to yourself, well, who in their right mind on the British side is going to be able to defuse this situation from escalating any further? Well, considering British and American lines were very close to one another in the ensuing chaos that followed, there were no British commands of, take aim, but rather present. 
In other words, present, meaning present your arms, meaning your rifle or your musket. But no one ever said on the British commanding side, take aim. Of course, when I think of presenting your arms, I, I often think of the following, take aim, make ready, fire. But that's not what happened at Lexington. Lexington militiaman Elijah Sanderson thought at first that the Redcoats were firing blanks. In other words, firing a blank as a warning to say, hey, if you don't disperse, you don't lay down your arms, we're going to go from firing blanks to firing the real thing. But shortly afterwards, Sanderson himself witnessed a Redcoat uh, soldier turn and fire towards a man behind the wall. In the blink of an eye, the real thing was being fired upon them. Balls, not blanks. It's amazing how quickly things can change in a matter of a few seconds. You know, uh, I think it's fair to say that perhaps the militiamen knew that something was going to happen, but maybe they didn't realize that it was going to happen so quick without um, any um, advance warning from um, British um, leadership above. In other words, uh, Captain Parker probably thought that if anything would have uh, happened, that one of the British officers would have said, present, and then would have um, been the ones to have um, fired a shot to say, hey, if you think about trying to um, fuel the fire anymore, then our um, units will fire multiple rounds to where you all will not be left standing. So Paul Revere and John Lowell, and I do believe it's fair to say that, um, uh, well, I do know that there is a town in Massachusetts north of Boston called Lowell, might be named after this fella. But Paul Revere and John Lowell witnessed the barrage of gun smoke which had shrouded a good majority of the entire common at Lexington Green. So, you know, we've all been led to believe that, you know, okay, if there were shots fired, they were just um, isolated shots. Now, you'd be surprised at uh, what gun smoke itself can do, especially if multiple shots do get fired and, and what the after effects are. In other words, not everything gets cleared right away. The smoke lingers. As for Paul Revere and John Lowell, while they're witnessing um, this unprecedented history unfold in the shots heard around the world, they are trying to seek shelter. And both men saw balls flying just above them. So in other words, they're not far away, but they do but they are in the thick of it. And they were fortunate enough to have sought shelter in the woods beyond the common, and they stayed put for about 15 minutes. Hey, after all, if you can stay in the woods, that's your best hiding spot. Otherwise, if you are out in the open, not only could you possibly get shot, but you could be taken prisoner. Paul Revere already had a, a harrowing escape once, and I don't know if he would have been so fortunate a second time around if he had been caught prisoner. Did most of the militiamen get off, a sh get off any shot? No. Only a few of them got off a shot or two. 
But unfortunately, the death toll for the militia was very high. Okay, what I mean by high, I know one could say, is it possible that 15 to 20 militiamen died? The answer is no. Um, I will give you all a number. The number is between 5 to 10. Does anybody want to take a guess? The answer is 8. 8 militiamen died. Two lay dead on the line where they had gathered. The remainder died while trying to disperse. Here's a story of one of them, and it's a very, um, it's, a tra it's, a tra it's a tragic way of dying. And I, sh and I will also point out a reminder behind uh, what happens in um, war, regardless of how big or small the skirmishes are. Jonathan Harrington. He was one of the eight militiamen who died. He was mortally wounded. He was a native of Lexington. He obviously didn't live far from the uh, common. When he was shot, he, um, just a few yards from his home, located on the common's west side, he fell in front of his home. His family saw him in complete agony. They were horrified by what had happened to him, but who wouldn't have been? He was crawling in pain. He managed to get to the doorstep, only to die in front of his family. I can't imagine being one of his family members and watching this unfold in front of my eyes. If that had been one of my family members, whether it was my father, or brother, or uncle, I would have been horrified. Jonathan Harrington was not obviously not afraid to have made the essential sacrifices. But what we should keep in mind is that just because one dies, it doesn't mean that they were able to die peacefully on the battlefield. Jonathan Harrington, you know, yes, if he had gotten home a few minutes sooner, could he have, could he have lived? We won't ever know. But what we do know is that he made the ultimate sacrifice. And one would have hoped that um, other um, members of his family valued his sacrifices and, were, and would not have been afraid to have um, taken on the cause for independence by following in his footsteps if they were of the right age to be able to fight. After all, folks, you know, serving in the militia runs between the ages of 15 to uh, 50 in uh, Massachusetts. But as I've said before, I'll say it again, not everyone gets to die peacefully on a battlefield. And we should also keep in mind that um, it won't be long before actual um, war itself will break out in Massachusetts in a, few, in a couple of months after, most notably Bunker Hill. But what I'm trying to get at is that as the American Revolution will expand into a um, global conflict, we will come to realize that more soldiers will die from disease as well as being prisoner of war versus dying on a battlefield. Ironically, at Colonial Williamsburg, the reenactors have said that, um, that you would have been better off alive on a battlefield than you would have been in a hospital or prisoner of war, and how true that is. Whereas eight American militiamen died at Lexington Common, there were no British fatalities, with the exception of one soldier who was wounded, 
So yes, there were a couple of militiamen who did get off a shot or two, and it's probably fair to say that one of them was able to wound a British um, soldier. And hey, by wounding a British soldier, that we can give our militiamen credit for not having backed down, and not just so much a shot being heard around the world, but being able to strike at the enemy on a battlefield. All right, now some of you were, were some of you had heard what I had said earlier, with all the melee and chaos going on at Lexington Green, with the British officers having allowed their um, brigades to start firing upon militiamen without any um, proper instructions or commands. Who's going to be the one to um, get the situation under control from the British um, on the British side? His name is Colonel Francis Smith, and why is he important? Well, for one, he was horrified by the scene in front of him, bodies of wounded and dead militiamen scattered around the common. Secondly, Smith and the primary body of his unit didn't arrive until after the fighting had ended. So remember, folks, not all uh, 250 British um, soldiers or more were right at that exact uh, spot on Lexington Green where um, the firing began. It's fair to say that Colonel Smith's men were in the um, very back, but by the time it was uh, clear for them to move, shots were already fired, fatalities have occurred. So Colonel Smith is, I almost hate to say this, but he's bearing the brunt of this. But yet he's got to do something, otherwise he's going to, otherwise there's going to be even more chaos within the British, um, within the British uh, infantry, amongst its regulars, redcoats, troops, you name it. Third, it was Colonel Smith who went above and beyond by getting regulars back in line, given other officers had lost control of their unit's actions. And of course, that was no chore either, no picnic rather, but it, but it all um, worked out. Many of the men um, were not happy about it because I think they would have liked to have kept on annihilating militia men. But, but Colonel Smith knew that if, that if um, the chaos had ensued, that it would have uh, probably backfired on British leadership even more to where the fire would have been so great that um, that more and more uh, militiamen might have shown up, or perhaps, uh, or perhaps uh, go somewhere else where they could catch uh, British uh, troops off guard, whom had just finished um, their um, their job at Lexington. That was uh, frowned upon by um, not just the outsiders, being the uh, militia, the surviving militiamen, and their um, and the families, or I should say in the townspeople, but perhaps would have been frowned upon by um, people within their own ranks. Lastly, um, Colonel Smith became the officer whom knew, whom knew all along about this mission, and that was the destination and being conquered. <laughs> I'm sure you all are probably thinking, well, why didn't Colonel Smith say anything about this earlier? Well, I hate to say this, but Thomas Ga General Thomas Gage's um, 
communication system is out of date. That is, all communication goes from top to bottom. Had he um, been more open, or say I should say diversified with his communication system being from bottom to top, I think it's fair to say that uh, perhaps the mission would have been known much sooner, and perhaps maybe Lexington might have been avoided. We'll never know, but when you have a communication system from top to bottom, yes, relaying information to the inner circle is important, but if you don't relay it to people outside the inner circle within your network, then how are they going to be able to be a part of something that's big but also a part of something that they know that they can still be valued for. See, Paul Revere's system of communication from bottom to top, while yes, there never was one particular person in control, everybody's voices, opinions, information was valued to where, to where everything being assembled led to a broader network of communication, committees of correspondence, Dispatch riders going in all different directions, warning the townspeople of, of how to get prepared when the British do come. Many lives were spared thanks to Colonel Francis Smith's heroic intervention, and how true that is. But, in, in, but many British officers, including the troops, were fearful of marching onward to Concord because they didn't know what could lie in store next. Well, what could that entail? How about ambushes from rebel militiamen in Concord, including the outlying villages and towns? So yes, you know, okay, we might have killed eight militiamen. We might have um, caused them to flee for their lives. But this was not a grand victory. This was a victory that resulted in bad um, discipline bad uh, structure um, from the get-go, especially knowing that no one knew about the mission with, until the very end when Colonel Smith was the one that um, had to pretty much save the entire British Army from collapse onto itself. Despite the deaths of those militiamen whom died at the common, would Captain Parker assemble his company again? Yes, the militia forces expanded twice their original size from earlier, and while grieving remained amongst the families who lost their husbands or brothers, sons or uncles, while that grieving still remained, the men whom did survive Lexington, and yes, there were many whom were wounded, these men got back up and proceeded to carry on with their duties in joining Captain Parker onward to Concord. But this go-around would be the exact opposite from Lexington. Well, there you have it, folks, about Concord. It was no little dinky uh, battle. It was, it may not have been the grandest battle, but it was the battle where the shots were heard round the world. By whom we will never know. But I do believe it's fair to say that a bystander, being that of an ardent patriot, was the one to spark that fire. To say, hey, it's more than just the militia. It's about all of us. And we're not going to take it no more. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to discuss 
the battle, or let alone a provincial protest that becomes a world war. So when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to discuss about Concord and how, and how much Concord will stand out as being different from Lexington. You know, Lexington itself represented the 101 fighting. Something tells me Concord will be beyond 101. I hope it will be because, you know, it's one thing to stand up to the mightiest empire in the world. But perhaps it could be fair to say that if you brought every militiaman possible to one place, then what would be the point in, in fighting another battle the same day? So we would like to think that the British have won. They may have won, but they didn't win pretty. Yes, eight militiamen made the ultimate sacrifice by giving up their lives so that their fellow brethren could carry on the next fight. However, freedom itself is still there. There is a beacon of light at the end of the tunnel. And when we're back on the air again next, we're going to learn more about Concord. And it should be a good one. Thank you again, as always, my fellow 101 listeners, for supporting me. And for those of you who have been with me since June of last year, your support has been tremendous. And regardless of how long any of you all have been with me, thank you from the bottom of, of my heart. And if, and if you know of people out there who want a podcast, you tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. And the, sky, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care and stay safe, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time.